Well, good morning. Thank you for, for showing up uh, an hour early. Uh, I, I was thinking like every time this year rolls around, I think, man, we need to do away with this. And then six months from now, I'll be really glad, right, that we had that, that, that one extra hour of sleep, one, one, but we're paying for it now, right? But that's the Christian life, right? Short-term loss for long-term gain. We, we, so we, we, we suffered this morning looking forward to October or, or whenever it is, right? Uh, if you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, open, Isaiah chapter 40, we'll be in verses 12 through 17. Isaiah, a prophet of God, an advisor to the kings of Judah, spoke these words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they were written down by inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have been looking forward to this passage since I found that I got to preach it, uh, so, and I'm looking forward, especially this morning, to, to, to thinking about it. Um, you're going to get to listen in on what I've been telling myself all week, um, and hopefully it's of some benefit to you. I ho- it, it has been very beneficial for me. Um, let me tell you a little bit about, uh, about my, my upbringing, just, just a, one quick story. Uh, I, I grew up in small rural towns across the state, first in, in Vail, Oregon, way off in eastern Oregon uh, through elementary school, and then high school in Myrtle Point down on the south coast. And uh, we, we, had, we had a boat. My father bought a, a deep-sea fishing boat, a sport boat, um, and I spent my summers from my freshman, sophomore, junior, senior years of high school and then into college out on the ocean, probably four days a week. Uh, we ate salmon and lean cod and snapper the way that like my family eats chicken right now. And, 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 and when you're bobbing around out on the ocean, especially when it's a little foggy and you cannot see anything but water, uh, you're, you're struck by this very profound thought. You'll want to write this down. There is a lot of water in the ocean. <laughs> a lot of water. Just an immense amount of water. And, and, and I remember feeling just very small as you're bobbing around out there and you're miles offshore. And, um, and, and then I remember one time, um, this happened multiple times, but one time it was very close, we saw... What's a, like a herd of, a pod of whales? What do you call a group of whales? Anyway, there are a bunch of whales out there. And they're big, 
So that's another profound thought. Whales are big. Whales are really big. They are these immense things. And, and at first I'm thinking to myself, man, this is awesome because you're seeing them out there. And then they get closer and closer and you start to think, I don't think I like this very much anymore. Right. And so I turned to my dad and I said, dad, we got to get out of here. And he's like, where? Right. <laughs> we're, we're bobbing around on the ocean and they are way faster than us. Where would we run? Right. Where would we flee? Where would we go? And then he says, don't worry about it. They're probably actually more scared of us than you are of them. And I said, I don't think that's true right now. I, I don't think that's true. Uh, the ocean is immense. And, and, and today our, our passage is about God being immense, God being all wise and, and God being uh, self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient. That's, that's it. The, the, we, we've been in, in Isaiah for uh, for some time, and uh, the, the primary takeaway of Isaiah 40, as we know, the opening verse is comfort, comfort to my people. That's, that was the application for Israel or for Judah as to what was to follow. It comes immediately after Isaiah 39, as you know, where Isaiah uh, reveals uh, that Judah, the southern tribe, is going to follow the northern tribes into exile. And, and so Isaiah 40 follows right after that with, with words of comfort. And, 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 and the, the, the primary theme of Isaiah 40, as we've seen, and it's, it's, it's on our bulletins every week, is behold your God. For, for the Israelites, that was the path to comfort, beholding God, seeing him, knowing their God, recognizing just who their God is. And in these six verses today, Isaiah 40, 12 through 17, Judah was asked to consider a few more things about her God. And when those truths of God were understood, they were to recognize that, that, that though the nations might be very, very scary, and, and though they were capable of, of doing uh, horrific things, they were nothing compared to the God of Judah. So this morning, as we unpack these verses, if, if, if you're here and you know, maybe, maybe you don't right now, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. I, I would invite you to, to listen and, and think, uh, where am I getting significance? Uh, from, from what do I derive meaning? Is it, is it my own abilities, my own gifting, my own sense of my own sufficiency? And, and contrast that with the God that is portrayed on these passages and, and, and consider whether there might be some reevaluation that's needed. And then for, for the rest of us who are here, we, we, we are here because we are followers of Jesus Christ. My invitation is, is this. Consider how vitally important it is that we have a God like this who is absolutely self-sufficient. And, and, and check and see how knowledge of that might affect the way that we live day to day. So, so that's, that's what I want you to consider. Uh, we start out in verse 12 uh, with, with this, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. And there, there's two things going on here. Uh, the first is that these are a bunch of figures of speech, and, and they're figures of speech called anthropomorphism. So, yeah, I, I, this is the theology professor and me coming out here. Anthropomorphism, that is, forms of humans that are attributed to God. But God doesn't actually have these things, right? God doesn't have a hand. He's, he doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a body, 
right? And so, but, but these things are attributed to him for the sake of making a real point, okay? And, and that point, of course, is that God is immense. He is immense. He is huge. The, the second thing here is that these are rhetorical questions, Rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question, of course, is a question that, that, that where you're not even supposed to answer it. You, you've all been with the people who answer the rhetorical questions, and you're like, well, no duh, Sherlock, that was a rhetorical question, right? That these questions don't require an answer. They, that none is necessary. You actually reveal more about yourself if you try to answer this question, right? You, you're not reading the room. You, you're not getting what's going on. So these are a series of rhetorical questions. And, and, and the rhetorical question that Isaiah has for Judah is this, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And, and so I, I told you my profound thought, the ocean's really big. I actually have some data on this. The, the NOAA, not the NCAA, but the NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and I have to read this because it's, I don't have these numbers memorized. They estimate that there are 321,003,271 cubic miles of water in the ocean. So that's a lot. That's 3.5267 times 10 to the 20th gallons of water. How much water is there in the oceans, we might ask the NOAA, and they would say there are 353 quintillion gallons of water. That's the actual term. I had to look that up. Didn't know that. Quintillion. That is 353 million billions. And so if you could put a, a billion gallons of water, we would need 353 million of those billions for, the wa- for all the water. That is an immense amount. If you ask the Lord, do you know what he would say? Lord, how much water is there in the oceans? You know what he'd say? About that much. About that much. The universe is 93 billion light years in diameter. And it's hard because the universe won't cooperate and stay still so we can put the tape measure on, on both ends. It's like ever expanding. But, but most astrophysicists, they, they say um, it's, three, it's 93 billion light years in diameter. A light year is 63,000 astronomical units. One astronomical unit is 92,955,887 miles. Therefore, right now, if you could put a tape measure on the universe, it would measure 5.446 times 10 to the 23rd miles in diameter. And that's only right now because the universe is ever expanding. If you ask the Lord, how big is the universe? What would he say? It's about that big. It's about that big. To God, it's about that big. So how big is God? How big is he? Uh, We could answer a variety of ways. Well, first off, that's just not even a valid question. Or, Or we could say this, he's big enough. Big enough for what? For whatever. He's big enough. He's big enough. Theologically, we would say that God is immense. He's immense. Now, God, God has no matter, right? He, he's not extended in space, though he is Lord over all space. More to the point, God transcends space. He's not limited by it at all. Wherever you are, he's got it. He's got it. Psalm, 19, Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, the psalmist writes, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. 
No matter where you go in space, no matter where you go in time, no matter where you go, life or death, God is there. He's there. He is everywhere, and he is unavoidable. And that has a bunch of different applications to it, doesn't it? The immensity of God means that he's not limited by space. It seems to me that one of our responses should be, we should fear the Lord. He is immense. Fear the Lord. And Christian, man, that has to start with us. Has to start with us. Why would we expect the culture to fear a Lord that we who know him do not? How do we speak of the Lord? Do we speak of him with familiarity, almost a lack of reverence? Or, or when we think about the Lord, and I'm not saying like for dramatic effect, but, but do we pause in awe and wonder? Are, are we representing this God that is portrayed on these pages of Scripture? Are we representing him as he actually is? God sees everything that we do. Everything. We cannot hide from him. And, and of course, that, that cuts both ways. It can be terrifying, right? For if there are no secret sins, if you're, if, if you're not a, if you're not a Christian and, and, and you're just trying to get by and, you know, most of your sins are not public and you're, you're not doing things to harm people, you need to know that God sees every single thing that you do. He knows every single thought that you have and there is no hiding from him. And Christians, we all know there's no such thing as a private sin anyway. Everything affects everything. Some things more than others, some people more than others, but we never sin in private. But God is always there. That's that lesson we learn when we're kids, right? Your mom says, now God sees what you're doing, right? Well, the, the theological truth, God sees what you're doing. He, he really honestly does. He's always there. He's always there. Now, the, the, the blessing in this for Christians is that God is always there. He's always with us. Always with us. Psalm 139, I read verses 7 and 8. Listen to the next two verses, verses 9 and 10. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. The Lord goes before, he travels with, and he even stays behind any place that he has ever called you to go. God's presence to bless you as his child, it's, it's not limited by your location, ever. God has the same undefeated record at home as he does on the road, right? And that should be of comfort to us. There is literally no place in the cosmos where God's presence cannot or will not be found. No matter where he asks us to go, no matter what part of the globe we are called to, God will be with us. Students about to leave home, right? It's really, really exciting. It's also simultaneously very, very scary. God will be with you. He will be with you. People who are, who are facing 
health issues. And, and my family this last week has had like this front row seat for, for just crazy stuff. If I were to tell you about it, you'd think I was making it up. Jesus has walked every path imaginable. He's been through the valley of the shadow of death. He's popped up on the other side, and he's willing to come back and take us by the hand and guide us. He is with us. And so when Jesus promises, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, when he promised that he would be with us until the end of the age, that means something. It means something. It means everything. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the very God portrayed in these passages, who space matters not to him. That's our Lord and Savior. He is with us. He's also very wise. Very wise. And and that's what verses 13 and 14 say. More rhetorical questions. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The topic of the question changes. It's no longer the immensity or the size of God. It's it's his wisdom. And what we're told here is that no one can take the full measure of the Spirit of God. No one can best him in a match of wits. Even if you're a Sicilian with death is on the line, you cannot (laughs) defeat God. I'm so glad you laughed at that because that that, that just tells me something about you and I appreciate it deeply there, right? Who, Who has counseled the Lord? Who has counseled the Lord? No one. No one has. God doesn't need our advice. Never has, never will. He always knows the right thing to do, and he always knows the right way to bring that goal about. His ways are good, he is just, and he is perfect. Romans 11, verses 30, verse 33, Paul, it's like he breaks into song in the middle of his letter. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Paul is singing about the same God that Isaiah is singing about here in Isaiah 40. And and maybe we should consider how we pray, as I I think on on this. You you realize that when you pray, God's not waiting for you to bring him advice, right? Uh, Or or for, for us to alert God as to things that are going on. God, I don't know if you knew this or not, but so-and-so is, is ill. Well, you know what? He knows that. He knows that. And, and he's not waiting for us to tell him like the best way. Now, from a prayer standpoint, I have, I have no problem telling God what I want, but, but I, I want to tell him some, but, but, but I choose like to, to frame it something like this. God, uh, I want (laughs) for you to heal my son-in-law's father. I know that you can. I know that you know what's going on. My desire, I'm just bringing my desire to you right now. Would you do it? Would you do it? And, and, and when I pray that way, I'm trying not to presume like, like God doesn't know. I'm not alerting him to something. He wants us. See, this is what's 
amazing about the passage here because this passage tells us a whole lot about ourselves and it tells us a whole lot about God but we have but but then we connect the dots to other parts of scripture that that cause us to just pause here the same God who doesn't need our advice doesn't doesn't isn't waiting for us to inform him of things he actually wants us to come and talk to him that's what's stunning about this he never grows bored with us He never grows weary of our requests. He wants us to talk to him, but we dare not think that we're bringing something to the table intellectually when we talk with the Lord. Do we seek the wisdom of God, as James instructs us to do, or do we seek to instruct the God of all wisdom? Why would we do that? Young people, I don't, uh, <laughs> um, you know, the, the answer to, to all of your questions in Sunday school and such is Jesus, right? But, but, it, but here's where here it, it's really true. Most of the time the answer is Jesus. And, and if you were asked, like, who's the smartest man who ever lived? Who's the wisest man who ever lived? The answer would be Jesus. Do we think of Jesus that way when we're talking about him? You know, we know he's loving and he's Savior and all this, but uh, the Apostle Paul told us that All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Jesus truly is the greater Solomon. He is the wisest person who has ever lived. And best of all, we could say it this way too, right? He's the wisest person alive. More on that next month, right? Easter comes. Do we understand God to be all wise? The one who has the best ideas and then the best way to accomplish them. And I think that we need to lean into that, especially when our culture would have us think differently. There are a lot of values that we find in the scriptures that flow from who God is that are really not very popular in our culture right now. But we need to remember that if God is all wise, then what he says is the best. He's not just like you know, like an intellectual bully who happens to be just a tad bit smarter but could still be wrong about things, and he's just enforcing his will on us. No, what God has to say about sexual ethics, about the Bible's teaching on, on what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman and how we comport ourselves in the church as men and women, man, that that is so going against the flow of, of our culture right now. And, and, and as we try to articulate what the Bible says to a culture that, that, that doesn't believe it, they'll look at us like we have like, you know, worms coming out of our eyes or something. Are we embarrassed about it though? Or are we convinced that God actually is all wise? Are, are, are we bold in our lack of embarrassment, if you will? Um, and, and, and here's what I mean. Like, when I'm, I'm talking with someone about, about what the scriptures say, and it runs contrary to the culture, the, the, there's an impulse, I think, in a lot of us to say, well, you know, if, if it were up to me, I wouldn't do it that way, right? If it were up to me, I wouldn't have this thing about, about uh, elders being male or, you know, that kind of thing. But, but, you know, that's just what God says. So what are we going to do? He's bigger than us, right? Stronger. Well, no. How about, um, I, I know this sounds crazy to our culture, but this is what God has said, and he is brilliantly wise. And he knows what's best. And even though our culture doesn't exactly understand it, I'm going to delight in it, because it's right. 
And it's good. I'm not going to apologize for it. We have to trust. And, and right now, it probably feels like things are just spinning out of control at times. Like, the, like you know, the, the, the wicked prosper too much for me to believe that God is all wise in any meaningful way. That, that the righteous suffer just a little bit too much for me to actually believe that God really knows what he's doing. But the testimony of Scripture is very, very clear. God knows exactly what he's doing. He's got this. It might appear to us like things are spinning out of control, but to God, everything is happening right on time. And it always has. And it always will. Which leads us to the last few verses here, the self-sufficiency of God, verses 15 through 17. We'll start verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Uh, one of my theology professors in school once, once joked, the Bible should come with a warning label. Warning, this book is hazardous to your arrogant and self-centered secular way of life, right? Um, this is about the nations, the, the collective whole of all people. Everything we have taken together, like, like all the force, all the power of the world, if we could assemble it in one spot, to God that would be like dust on a scale, like a drop in a bucket, which is what? Insignificant. Insignificant. Not even worth talking about. And these, these verses are primarily about us in this regard, right? But by implication, they say something very important about God. God is the self-sufficient one. God has all things necessary for every task. He possesses every quality within himself intrinsically, and he, does, and he has so that without limit. He is in and of himself sufficient for all things. Whatever God chooses to do, whatever he envisions, he's got the right stuff to make it happen. Sometimes this is called the independence of God. The, the fancy theological word is aseity. Aseity just means that he's self-sufficient, that he, is, that he has life in and of himself. Paul, when he was talking to the Athenians in Acts 17, had this to say as he's defending his gospel to them. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man contrary to what they were probably thinking, right? Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That was one of the most fundamental truths that Paul chose. When Paul is talking to the Athenians about the gospel, that's what he chose to highlight. God's independence. And it's a difficult truth. And it's this, and we have to come to grips with it. The sooner the better. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. And at first that sounds like, well, well then what am I even doing here? That, that just makes me feel bad. But, but then think about it for a moment. Do we really want God to need us? Do we really want God to have needs that he would otherwise lack if I don't step in? That'd be horrifying, wouldn't it? We might want God to need us until we think about it. Think about this. If, if God needs us, if he needs us, then his love for us that we just delight in, it couldn't actually be unconditional, could it? 
he would be dependent on us in some way, which means that his love would be contingent on us continuing to meet that need. And that might sound good until you sober up, right? And, and you realize, I am not sufficient to meet any need that God has. And if God's, it's God, if God's love for me is contingent on me bringing something to the table, I don't have much to offer. I don't have anything to offer. I mean, what do I bring to the table? Demerit, sin, right? Oh, but I have gifts. Yeah, gifts that God gave you. Well, I got money. Money that God gave you. He's got it all already, right? Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't use us. I am not saying that God doesn't value us. That's what makes this so wonderful. He actually does. Incomprehensibly, he values us. He loves us. He uses us. But he doesn't need us. He'll use you. He wants to use you, but he doesn't actually need you. And in the next couple of verses, we find out maybe a little bit why, almost for, by way of example. Look at verses 16 and 17. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So Lebanon, at this point in time, was renowned for its trees, its forests, its cedars. You might have heard of the, the cedars of Lebanon, right? It's lush a place with deeply forested, lush pasture land, lots and lots of trees. It, so it's like Oregon, at least the western half of Oregon, which will never run out of trees. Isn't that our state motto? Oregon will never run out of trees because we just keep planting them. We cut them down and we plant more. It's great. I love that. I told you a little bit about myself earlier. I'm, I think trees are a renewable resource, right? Um, so, and that's great. We have a bazillion trees, it feels like. I grew up in logging towns. It's wonderful. Take all of the wood and then all of the beasts that such fertile land could provide and it could not atone for sin. Not our sin. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it at all. They would be insufficient to offer the Lord a burnt offering that would make any difference, that would move the needle at all. And verse 17 is even more stark. The nations are as nothing. We have no leverage. We bring absolutely nothing to the table. And, and there's a theological truth here that we have to come to grips with. God is more unlike us than we are unlike any other creature. Okay, so I'm going to say that again, but I think this is important. God is more unlike us than we are unlike anything else, than any other creature. That is, the gap between us and God is greater than the gap between us and any other creature. Why would that be? Well, we're all created living beings. Us and, you know, dogs and cats and other animals. God's not. We're all dependent on things outside of ourselves. God especially. And then others. We're all dependent on others. God's not dependent on anybody for anything. We're finite. God is not. The, the gap between us and God is greater than the gap between us and any other creature. Um, one of my sons bought my, one of my other sons, sea monkeys for Christmas, which I was fascinated by because I grew up looking at comic books and seeing the sea monkey advertisements. And then you get them and they're like far less impressive than the advertising was for them. But we had sea monkeys for a while. So, so here's the profound theological thought. We're actually closer to sea monkeys than we are to God. 
Yeah, write that one down. We're, we're, we're closer to being like sea monkeys than we are to being like God. Now, now, all, now I don't want to, so that the, the <laughs> I don't want to deny this truth. We're, we're actually more like God than any other creature that he made. Okay, so I'm not saying, preacher just told us we're sea monkeys today. Um, no, uh, not exactly. Maybe some of you, maybe me, but not, <laughs> no, um, that, that's not the point. That's not the point. Um, we are, we humans and we humans alone are created in the image of God in order to image him here in his creation, to, to represent him, to act as his vice regent. So there's enormous glory and significance in that. But that doesn't mean that the gap between us, I'm made in the image of God. That means I must be the closest thing to God that there is. Well, you are, but the gap is still infinite. It's still infinite. It's not razor thin. God is infinitely greater than us, right? Which is actually a happy thought. If, if that's the case, let's, let's think about how the self-sufficiency of God intersects with atonement, because we've been talking about that with uh, offering a burnt offering. Verse 16 is clear. We can't bring a burnt offering that will move the needle for God. So, so we might think, well, well, God commanded all those burnt offerings. So what, what's the point there? Two bad theologies of sacrifice. I'm going to offer you two, and then I'll offer you a good one. Bad theology of sacrifice number one. We provide for God. We meet his needs. This is what the ancient Near East thought when they were giving their sacrifices to their gods, that they were bringing, they were feeding their God and they were depend, the gods were actually dependent on them. And if they didn't meet their needs, then they would get smitten, smited, smoted, hurt. They would get hurt. Psalm 50, verse 7, David reflects on this. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continuously before me. So, so God is frustrated with Israel, and he's telling them why. And he's saying, it's not for lack of sacrifice. You're doing that. You're doing that. He says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Really, he's saying, they're mine already. They're mine already, Right? Then verse 12, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And then he asks, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? That's a rhetorical question. No, he doesn't. The, the ancient Near East theology of sacrifice was that in the offering, you were feeding the gods. You were bringing to, to them something they needed. And this psalm mocks that idea. And, and we laugh at it, right? <laughs> they actually think that God drinks the blood of goats and eats the flesh of bulls. I would never think that, but we can kind of fall into that air, like when we're giving, when we're giving. We do not give to the work of the Lord because God needs us, or that God doesn't have. Everything that we give, it's an expression of what God has already given to us. We don't impoverish God through our lack of giving. God has all that he needs to accomplish all that he wants to do with or without your money. Now, there are a lot of really good reasons to give to the ministry of the Lord, especially here to our local church. Lots of good reasons. It's sanctifying. It's it's an expression of worship, as as Anthony told us. It it, it gets us involved. We actually get to partner with God. Uh, It's a demonstration of trust. Uh, There's lots of really good reasons to give, not to mention the fact that God commands it. But he doesn't command it because he needs our money. That would be a bad reason. Like we, 
a, a bad reason to give. Well, God can't do this without me. What about serving on the mission field? Have you ever heard this kind of call? God wants his, this people group to believe, but he can't do it without you. Will you go? That's not just wrong. It's, it's like manipulating through guilt. And it's also incredibly blasphemous. It takes the, the God as creator and his creation relationship, turns it on its head. We're supplying what God lacks. God has no needs. He doesn't lack in anything. So, so meeting God's needs is not a good theology of sacrifice. Here's the second bad theology of sacrifice. I can somehow atone for my own sin. That, that we could offer a sacrifice great enough. We, in and of ourselves, could offer a sacrifice great enough that would balance the scales of justice with God, that, that, that would cause him at that point to look with favor and say, okay, sin atoned for. The, Isaiah here says, you could get all the trees of Lebanon and all the beasts of the field and offer them up and it wouldn't move the needle with God at all. You would be no closer to being reconciled to God than you were before you started the barbecue. Hebrews 10.4 just tells us just flat out, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So we may, well, so what hope is there? What hope is there? Here's our good theology of sacrifice, the atoning work of Jesus. Let's remember what this passage has taught us already. God is infinite in power and wisdom. He's immense. He is the self-sufficient one. We, on the other hand, are, are finite, utterly dependent upon God and others for our survival. At the very beginning of the Bible, we're taught that God created us with dignity and honor. We were created in the image of God in order to represent him. We were delegated to take care of everything that God had made. We also know that like one page into the Bible, we sinned against God and that the penalty was, was death. God's dependent creation sinned against an independent, awesome God, and the penalty was death. And if we're not to suffer the full consequences of our rebellion, then our sin has to be atoned for. But but what could pay that penalty for us? We are powerless to atone for our own sin. It's, there's, a, there's a fundamental law of the universe that, that I think we all get. We could, it's that the, the degree of sin is relative to the one sinned against. The, the, the magnitude of the sin has something to do with the one sinned against. For example, you break into my house to like steal my television set. I don't know why you would do that, but let's just say you did. And, and, and you knocked over my son's sea monkeys, and they died. I'd probably thank you at this point. Uh, you, you walk, but you, you come into our house to steal the television set, and you kill a cat, our cat. I wouldn't appreciate that that much. I'm not that big of a cat guy, but that, that would be, it feels worse. Like sea monkeys are greater than cats, and so it's a, it's a greater sin. You break into my house to sell my to steal my television set, and you kill one of us humans. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal, right? And I, I think we all get that. And so, so that just illustrates the point: the one sinned against. Well, we have sinned against an infinite God, and that makes our sin infinite. It makes it, how could we atone for that? We're finite. How could we do that? As we work through the Old Testament, we can only come to the conclusion that we're powerless to atone for our own sin. Like, if, if you think about it, the, the Old Testament from a human perspective, is just one big exercise in failure to reconcile us, ourselves to God. 
But God, as we know, is immense. He's all wise. He's also the self-sufficient one. He alone has what it takes to bridge the gap between us and him. Only God has the power to overcome sin and death. Only God has the wisdom to know how to reconcile ourselves to him. A plan is crafted where the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Spirit, they'll save us. God the Son would become a human. He, our self-sufficient, independent God, emptied himself by adding to himself a human nature just to become just like we are so he could substitute for us. A couple months ago, we celebrated the most remarkable day, Christmas, when God incarnated. We remember the day when Jesus Christ was born. In a month, we'll celebrate Good Friday, remembering that it was on that day that our immense God died a human death on the cross on a lonely hill, a point in time some 2,000 years ago. Then, three days later, we'll celebrate Easter, remembering that our all-wise God, always knowing that death could not hold the perfect Son of God, raised him from the dead, demonstrating that our sin had been atoned for. But why? What did it take? It took a self-sufficient God who had what it take to do it. That's why Peter wrote, knowing you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, which in our estimation is not, but to God they are, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Its worth is infinite. God had, and God alone had what it take to save, had what it takes to save us. The cross of Christ is a demonstration of God's immensity, his wisdom, best of all, his self-sufficiency. God knew that we, his dependent and rebellious creation, could never save ourselves. But because we matter to God more than we could ever understand, in his perfect wisdom, he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. We've always been and always will be dependent upon the Lord. And at the cross, God's self-sufficiency is marvelously displayed. We can't reconcile ourselves to God, but he could. Why? Because he always has the right stuff to do whatever needs to be done whenever he wants to do it. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, what I just articulated for you is the gospel, and we would love to talk with you more about that. If you already are a follower of Jesus and you want to talk about that, yes, let's keep talking about it, because this is the most wonderful truth that has ever been uttered. Christian, you need to know that, that you matter more to God than you can ever imagine. The cross is evidence of that. Your salvation is secure. And it's secure because it was accomplished by our God who is not thwarted or hindered by anything in his creation, even the things that continually limit us like space and time. Why? Because God is immense. Our salvation is secure because it was accomplished by an all-wise God who always knows the best goals. He always knows the best way to accomplish those goals too. And, And it might be counterintuitive, but your salvation Your standing with God is secure, not because you bring anything to the table, not that you contribute in some way, but precisely because you don't contribute anything. You don't. Your salvation is secure because God is the self-sufficient one. And so we listen to the promise of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, he said, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. 
and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The same hand that can hold the oceans is the same hand that tenderly holds you and will not let you go no matter what. God has you in his hands. Your destiny is secure. God's love for you will never wane. I said earlier that God is more unlike us than we are unlike any other creature. And I think, man, you just compared me to sea monkeys. That's a bummer. No, it's wonderfully good news because the gospel that saves us and maintains us teaches us that our immense, all-wise, independent, and self-sufficient God, he is for us. Everything that God is, he is for us. As a Christian, man, get off the treadmill of thinking that you have to measure up to maintain your position as children of God. It's exhausting, it's impossible, it's wrong-headed, and frankly, it's dishonoring. Think that we need to measure up to earn our keep, to maintain our status. That just flips the creator-creature distinction on its head, and it makes a mockery of the truths of Isaiah chapter 40. Your salvation is secure precisely because God is self-sufficient. And Paul understood that. That's why he wrote these wonderful words to the church in Rome. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The hands of God that can hold the oceans in his palm hold you securely. Gresham Bible Church, behold your God, the self-sufficient one who stoops down to save and keep you. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for these wonderful truths, and we stand in awe of of who you are. Forgive us if we have been familiar with you, if we have taken you for granted. How could such a thing be? Remind us, we pray, of your immensity and of your wisdom. May we take confidence and hope in that that you have whatever it takes to bring about your good and perfect ends. May you find in us, Father, willing participants, faithful participants in your great plan. It's our prayer in Jesus' name.